So I drive, I'm trying to follow it. I'm like looking at MapQuest on my phone uh, and going back and forth. I finally drive past the house and there's a little thing in the middle and then another house. Welcome, my friend, to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. And before we get into the show in today's episode, which I know you'll get a lot of value from because we're, we stay out of all the fluffy stuff and we get straight into the good stuff of real estate investing advice, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, and that's Patch of Land. Uh, they are making this show possible and they're making tons of flipping projects possible all across the country. If you don't know about Patch of Land, then they are the number one company to go to for uh, projects that you're flipping uh, because they have all the money available right now. Um, once you get approved for your your deal and yourself as a sponsor or a borrower, um, you're going to be funded by them. And then they go raise the money through their crowdfunding platform. So you don't have to worry about all that. They'll take care of the, the money and the funding for you. You just have to worry about making sure your project's, project's a success. Uh, they've got something really cool for you. So um, if you are just learning about crowdfunding, uh, they've come up with a guide. It's called the Top 10 Crowdfunding Questions Guide. And they're all the, the questions that you might be asking yourself. And they're all the answers. They don't leave you hanging. They've got answers too. All the answers to those, those 10 crowdfunding questions. So you can go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Uh, and if you think you know everything about crowdfunding, I check this guide out just in case because there are some interesting aspects that you'll learn. So go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. This is a show where we go straight to the good stuff, cut out all the fluff, and we get some best real estate investing advice ever from our best ever guest who's got tremendous experience. In this case, on today's episode, it's going to be in multifamily and deal syndication. And we get their insight on kind of how to approach things. And with us today, John Cohen, based out of Queens, New York. Welcome, John. Pleasure, Joe. Pleasure's mine. <laughs> Well, John, I'm, I'm excited to have a conversation with you and talk to you about what you've been up to because you've been up to a lot. You just completed, was it your first syndicated deal? Yeah, and I've done some smaller deals and some tax deed stuff, but this is my true first multifamily syndication uh, where I put it all together, raised a lot of the money. It's the first bigger deal, so I would say yes, it's my first true syndication. First true syndication, but has a lot of real estate experience. He started out in real estate buying tax deeds. Prior to that, he worked at Marcus and Millichap as a multifamily specialist in Brooklyn and Queens. And he's a founder of JC Property Group. What's your website? Do you have a website? I do. It's actually under construction now, but uh, it's going to be jcpropertygroupinc.com. And uh, that should be getting finished up within the next couple of weeks. Awesome. So uh, if it's not working right now, then just check back later. And non-real estate related, but interesting, he played baseball at Queens College and Mercy College. And I asked him before the show what position he played. And he said right field and third base. So I know from my baseball experience, he's a, he's a heavy hitter. <laughs> he knows how to slug the baseball, right? Yes, that's, uh, that's my best aspect there for sure. 
<laughs> well, John, I'm excited for you to talk to the best ever listeners a little bit about your background and what you're focused on. Sure. So the, the background I had, uh, I was actually in finance prior to getting into real estate. I was a stockbroker, Long Island, pretty classic route for uh, someone with my education and you know my work set skills. And actually had a job offer at Morgan Stanley that I turned down the day that I was walking in to start my first day, financial advisor program, three-year training program. It was a very good package. I uh, walked in Monday morning, walked in, went right into my boss's office, told him I can't do this anymore, I'm not having fun, don't want to do it for the rest of my life. Walked out, called my mom, told her what I was doing, and she called me crazy. She's like, you're going into, you're doing real estate? Are you kidding me? And I said, well, this is what I want to do. And it was not the classic transactions, you know, brokerage side. It was more investing, which was even, there was other choice words that she used there when I told her that. But uh, I wouldn't take no for an answer. Got a little bit of education, and then I got into it. I started out by buying $300 lots in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, <laughs> about five years ago, I would say. Four, yeah, about five years ago, and made a couple mistakes. Uh, first property I ever bought had a power transformer on, on it, 20 by 20 lot, and had no idea what I was doing. But it was a $300 mistake, not a much larger mistake. And I sort of taught myself what not to do and what to do, and uh, had a a lot of downtime, got my license, got into residential real estate in Manhattan, and then transferred over to the commercial side because that's what I always envisioned when I thought real estate, bigger transactions, larger properties. And uh, that led me to Marcus, where uh, I got introduced to a very good buddy of mine and said, you know what, why am I trying to sell these things? Let me buy them for myself. And that's where I am now. Well, I want to focus on multifamily, but I have to ask the question about this $300 lot thing in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I don't know why it's bad to have a power. I mean, I, I can guess why you shouldn't have a power transformer on there, but I'm thinking maybe it's extra revenue because you're renting it out to a, an electrical company. Yep. So that's how stupid I am on that stuff. What was the deal with having a power transformer? Oh, and you're right. I agreed at first. When I got there, I mean, I bought, I was standing on an auction, everyone's standing up and bidding, and I'm getting excited. And I told myself, don't bid, just watch. But it's a nice, <laughs> it's an exciting environment. So. <laughs> Property comes up. And they don't cultivate that excitement in, in the environment at all. They, uh -uh. they just want, yeah, they, they don't want an excitement or a frenzy. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, so I stand up, I go $362, I put my hand up, I look around, I'm like, okay, <laughs> 300 bucks, I get a piece of property. How bad could this be? So I go down to the county, I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm looking at this piece of paper they give me, and I'm trying to find it. And the guy brings me over into this other map room, takes off a map off the, the rack, and he's going through it. I go to take a picture of it. And uh, he's like, oh, no, no, you got to buy a copy. So I buy a copy, 10 bucks, and uh, I get a, a section block and lot map. He's like, okay, this is your property. So I drive. I'm trying to follow it. I'm like looking at MapQuest on my phone uh, and going back and forth. I finally drive past the house, and there's a little thing in the middle and then another house. And I'm looking at the, the section block and lot, and I'm like, wait a second. I <laughs> pass it. So I pull over. I get out. I'm walking the steps because it has the, the footage on it. I'm like, okay this not bad. And, you know, I think I could rent this out to the utility company, but no, it was not an in-use power transformer. So it was just a big block of sort of what used to be that. So I read a book and I'm like, you know what, let me go knock on the neighbor's doors, see if they want to buy this piece of property. So I knock on the one neighbor's door and I go, well, you know, the, the neighbor next door is interested in this property. Do you want to buy it? She said, no, I think I'm going to pass. So I walk over to the other neighbor and I said, well, you know, your next door neighbor said she'd be interested. She's like, no, she didn't. 
I said, why? She goes, because you're the fourth person in the last three years to tell us that. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. And I uh, got my car and realized that I just threw $372 in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Could you put like a billboard on it or something? I mean, or is this just so remote or like a fruit stand, just rent it out to a local farmer? You, you could have, but it was sort of in an area where there was no highway. I would have loved to have done that. So it wasn't a complete waste, but it was sort of like a residential area. The footage on the lot was not really there. It was sort of like in between two houses and it was a mistake. <laughs> Oh, wow. Did you have, was there a success story on buying lots, like a $300 lot in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I bought a couple lots, the exact number. Uh, you know, it was it was a while ago. I did do a bunch of them. I still buy deeds to this date in Philadelphia. It's like a glutton for punishment because I'm syndicating 48 <laughs> unit deals. And then I go down and buy an $8,000 disaster of a house. But it's like my roots, so I can't get away from it. But uh, yeah, I bought some houses, you know, cheap between five and seven hundred bucks, and I did sell them to some neighbors. I did do okay in that aspect, so I can't say it was all a disaster. But there was a couple of bumps in the road to get there. So you you buy them for? We just high level those numbers one more time. I was buying lots. I would say in the in the five to seven hundred dollar range, and selling them for a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks in that range. Pretty simple just signing over the deeds to them nothing really as far as transaction cost and transfer tax and all that stuff it was pretty probably not the 100 percent right way to do it when you started but uh it paid the bills <laughs> and who are you finding to purchase them neighbors i literally looked for plots in between two houses decent sized plots where a neighbor would be interested in picking it up and i would preliminary knock on the door and see if they had any interest if they did i would go out and take the risk and then uh, just piece it together pretty quickly after that. Wow, that's a very active $300 that you're making. Yes, it was a lot of work. And when you're getting into real estate, you know, you think, looking back now, I actually had this conversation with a, another Bigger Pockets uh, member. And I said, you know, when you really broke it down, how much I was making per hour, it wasn't worth the gas that it would cost me to drive back and forth to Pennsylvania. But I didn't think that way when I was 20. Two year, 23 years old, it was like, I'm doing real estate deals. But yep. hindsight has uh, definitely taught me that that was a lot of work for uh, not much of a reward. <laughs> Do you think you have taken something from that experience and applied it to what you're doing now, Trent, you know, to kind of us segueing into the, the 48 syndicated unit you did in Columbus? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing I took away was not relying on and not saying this because I'm a broker myself, not relying on, I'm more going out and doing it yourself. You know, I am a big advocate of knocking on doors, picking up the phone, cold calling, doing something that the next person's not necessarily going to do. It's either time consuming or not. So I think the work ethic that I put in for that was the biggest thing that I took away to transpire or to transgress into what I'm doing now. And what aspect of that knocking on doors or cold calling did you apply for this deal specifically, the 48 unit? So the 48 unit was actually a direct mail campaign that I sent out. I'm a big believer in that. I did it in the single family world. I did a couple of wholesales on Long Island, which all came from direct mail. Also, when I was a broker for Marcus, I did direct mailers. I sent out mailers to my market all the time to you know, build myself up as a brand, as a broker in the area. So I took the tools that I learned there and through the single family world, and I implement that every day in my business. I'm sending out probably... 500 to 750 letters each month, very targeted campaigns to markets that I focus on throughout the country. You're sending 500 to 700. Are they postcards? 
No, I do. I, I mix it up. I do send a postcard. Generally, I like to send something that's pretty professional looking first, followed with a yellow letter, followed with a postcard, followed with another professional letter. I like to put everyone on like a six to eight drip or touches through the mail, and then everyone gets a follow-up call every month. So, you know, if I send out 500 letters, they're all getting a call throughout the month just to follow up with them. So they get touched over maybe a six-month period, eight-month period uh, between 12 and 16 times. Are you personally making those five to 700 phone calls a month? Up until this deal took a lot out of me, yes, I still do. And I actually am getting back to that. I said starting this week, and I did make a lot of calls today, actually, prior to this. But I, I do have uh, a cousin of mine that is very active and wants to be more involved in real estate. He just took a CPA, passed his fourth part, but doesn't want to be an accountant. And I do have a buddy from college, my roommate, who's actually making a bunch of calls for me as well. So I am getting some help, but I tell them I'll never ask someone to do something I'm not willing to do. So I do pound the phones. I try and do it at least twice a week. And definitely, I know at Marcus, it was 350 calls a week minimum. So I like to, you know, at least get close to that number of making those calls a week, you know, maybe not 350, but you know, 200 or so. Oh, what is it? What Marcus has a minimum number of calls that you should make? Yeah, Marcus and Millichap put you on a, and it's not as strict as if you miss it, you get fired, but they like to see 350 contacts where either you speak to somebody or leave a voicemail. 350 calls each week, which will translate into at least four meetings a week, which is 20 meetings a month. And if you hit those numbers, generally you're pretty successful at Marcus. You will get some listings and you will sell some deals. And my finance background, when I was a stockbroker, I was making 500 calls a day. So when I found out I only had to make 350 a week, I was like, this is going to be a breeze. And uh, so I've taken, you know, back to that work ethic, which I think is the you know number one thing in real estate is just waking up a little earlier and working a little bit harder than the next guy. Uh, I take that to, you know, to my grave every day. You said you're sending five to 700 mailers out and there's different types of mailers depending on where they're at in the drip campaign. Yes. How do you coordinate all of that? Do you have a, a company that you you hire and use? Yeah, so I just, this year is when I first went out to a company. Before that, I was typing it, stuffing it myself, getting some people to help stuff envelopes, you know, cousins, friends. But after, I think it was earlier this year, I wrote a 400 letter in yellow paper. I was like, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. So right now I actually use directmailtools.com and the rep that I talked to over there has been amazing. He'll send me a reminder basically monthly, you know, new letter going out. He has my lists, so he has it all set up. I told him, I sent him all the campaign, like the postcard, the yellow letter. I sent them that all to him up front, and uh, he keeps me honest with it, saying, you know, sending me a letter, making sure it's all proofed and everything's ready. So I give them a lot of credit, and that's who I use now. And do they, when you said you sent them the stuff to, to begin with, was that to share with them what it should say? Yes, it was all my, it was basically the list of properties I wanted to mail and the letters that I wanted to write or the letters that I, with my company logo, my business line and what I wanted it to say, you know, whether it was a yellow letter or a postcard or, you know, I just closed the deal to send out to the immediate area, you know, all those things I sent them preliminary. And then I told him this is one, two, three, four, five. And he keeps it, you know, pretty, he keeps it in order and, you know, update, actually got me an email yesterday for my next campaign. So he's, he's on top of it, which saves me a lot of time. And it's been, it's been great. Where do you get the list to mail to prospects? How do you, where do you get those addresses? 
I use ListSource. That's a big one. And I use Property Shark. Those are the two that I seem to work. There's good response rates off them. I know there's a lot of other ones, so I don't want to say anything bad about those companies, but those are just what I've been used to. And that's, you know, Property Shark and ListSource are the two that I go with. And how much just generally does it cost, or specifically if you have specifics, for the list? And how much does it cost to do a monthly mailing campaign like you're doing right now? So list source is pretty cheap. I think it's about eight cents a lead. So if you download, you know, five hundred, you're talking about a nominal number. Uh, what is that? About forty bucks or so. And then Property Shark's a little bit more expensive. If you're not a member, the prices vary based on if you're a member or not. I just downloaded uh, two hundred and seventy-five for my forty-eight that I closed. I'm going to send all those that's within a four-mile radius of my property in Columbus. I'm going to send them all a letter saying I just bought one, looking to buy more. That was thirty-three bucks for two hundred and seventy-five. I think it was not with taxes and all included. So the list list source is about eight cents. Property charges a little bit more, and then the letter direct mail tools charges anywhere between like eighty-five cents and a dollar and change depending if you want a bigger envelope, a yellow letter, you know, so it looks handwriting. So all you, know, you could customize it pretty good, but I would say you're going to fall between, let's call it 90 cents and a dollar, you know, a dollar 10. And when you're searching for the different addresses on list source to purchase, what are you searching for? For the multifamily stuff, I like to do 50 units or more, which was how I started. Now it's probably 100 units or more. I like to do uh, either free and clear or mortgages coming due. So maybe they bought the property seven years ago and they have a balloon payment or 10 years ago with a balloon payment. So I'll vary that. to And ListSource is good because it shows you a total number. So if you get like six properties, I would go back and not make it as specific. But I do 50 units or more, 1970s construction or newer, free and clear, or owned it for longer than a certain amount of time. And I do uh, obviously not owner-occupied, which most of the stuff isn't. So now let's talk high level about the, the syndicated deal. Sure. I've mentioned syndication on this um, on many episodes, but on this one in particular, I've mentioned a couple times. Can you just tell the, for anybody not familiar, very, very quickly, can you just tell them what a syndication is? So a syndication is basically, uh, it's very similar to like a hedge fund or an asset management structure. So you uh, go out, find the deal as well as go out and raise private money, not hard money. You know, you're raising money from friends, family, coworkers, people that you know, uh, potential investors, and you structure the deal accordingly. Basically, you do all the work, they fund the deal, and then you give them an equity split. You know, on my deal, I did an 80-20 equity split with a hurdle of 10%, and then the split goes to 60-40. So high-level syndication, it's basically going out and raising money and finding the deal and getting paid for doing the work. You said an 80-20 equity split, so they receive 80%, you receive 20%, right? Yes. And then there's a 10% hurdle, so once they make 10% on their investment, then the equity split changes, correct? Yes, so anything, uh, and it's 10% annually, anything over 10%, the split goes 60-40. They get 60%, I get 40% of the dollars over 10%. Very clean cut, very, very uh, simple structure. Yes. And there are many ways, as I'm sure you know, to structure these deals with investors. What made you choose this way? And um, I noticed you didn't say there's not a preferred return on this, is there? No, there's not. And and the reason why I did the 10% annually is because the deal is a value-add deal. There's not much cash flow year one because there are 13 units or now 12 units that need to be renovated. So the cash flow is not there year one. 
and year two, given the condition the building was in, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm projecting probably, you know, an eight-ish percent return. But if I would have done a preferred return, they would have been paid and I wouldn't have been paid. So I basically promised them on the back end saying, we're all going to do, we're going to do the 80-20 split for the life of the deal. But when it on sale, I will accumulate back the 10%. So you will make 10% a year and then anything over that. So instead of the preferred return, which sometimes syndicators don't get paid for the life of deal because they owe money to investors, I decided to do it this way. So I could put some, uh, some money in my pocket throughout the life of the deal as opposed to waiting till the end to get a big chunk of that. And did you do an acquisition fee or their disposition fees or any any other fees? Yeah, I did. I did a pretty classic, not too crazy. I did do an acquisition fee and an asset management fee. So my acquisition fee was uh, was a touch under two percent. Trying to think. Yeah, it was right around two percent. And then I do. I have a one one point five percent asset management fee for the life of the deal, which is of the gross collected rent. And what was the purchase price? Purchase price was one 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 five. One 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 five. So you bought it for one thousand one hundred and fifteen dollars. It's a great deal. Right. I, I wish. <laughs> I wish it was that. No, one point one one five million, and then uh, the all-in price with acquisition, closing, and reserves was one three five two. What's one takeaway that you learned from the first official syndicated deal that you've done? Sellers are fun people to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> I would say another t- a big takeaway that I got was over raise because people say they're going to do it and they don't do it and uh, just be prepared for anything that could come up and have to adapt on the fly you know it's not it's not cut and dry for sure when you were raising money and that's what I found out on my first syndicated deal that uh, you have to raise about 30% more verbal commitments and what you think you need. And you let people know that, hey, this is already committed to verbally, but if something changes with someone, then you know, you, you'll, you'll be in it because life happens and circumstances change and people just aren't able to invest. When you were having those conversations, how close to the finish line were you and what was that like? That was fun because I actually had three investors one guy was going to fund the whole deal, and he had some things that came up. He pulled out. Another guy was going to come. I basically ended up, I had financial commitments, and two people actually had money in the bank that they needed money back, which is a little strange. But I, I raised about $800,000 and lost about $500,000 of that up front, and then I had to backfill. So I was left, my total dollar raise was 580000 So I actually raised... 500, 800,000 had to give money back to investors, but then was able to make up the backs, the make up the, the difference. So I, that's not the norm, but you're right. I would say try and shoot for 30% over what you think you're going to need because things do come up and it just happens. But this deal was one of the ones where a lot of things came up and I did have <laughs> to, uh, you know, go back to the drawing board a couple times. You raised it, meaning they wired the money into the account and then they needed it refunded? Yeah. The two people that did were my friend's dad. One was in California and then the st- his kid got his third DUI. So he actually needed his money back. And the other guy was a guy who buys antique wear like uh, storage facilities. He bought a, a, a unit and it was significantly more expensive than he originally thought. So he actually asked if he could have it back. And I said, well... If we closed, the answer would be no, but 
you know, they are two very good friends of mine and larger investors. So I ended up did giving, I ended up giving their money back to them. Wow. That's something that I haven't heard of. And perhaps I haven't been in the game long enough, but I was referring to people verbally committing and then, and then backing out. But I, I haven't come across two, one, let alone two in a deal who have wired the money and then asked for it back. Normally, because in this deal, I had a, uh, another one of my good friend's fathers put in some money, and he actually wanted to switch over to the IRA. So he wanted to go from self-directed IRA. He put cash in because it was close to closing. But then we closed. He actually, we have a call with the accountant to figure out how to do the distribution so it's right and accounting-wise. But yeah, normally a verbal commitment is just a verbal commitment. You know, you get something from them. Maybe you get a commitment letter signed. Uh, and those people can clearly back out. There's no repercussion. But this was something that I was not prepared for. I know the first guy came in. He basically said, we're going to, you know, we're going to do 80-20. You're not going to take any distributions until I get my equity back. But then we'll go 50-50, which I was okay with. But then I had to give his money back. So I was like, okay, you know, that, we just lost 600 grand. Let's go back to the drawing <laughs> board. And then the other two came in. But it wasn't because of the, the nature of the deal. And it did take a lot longer to close. I wasn't. I was okay with it because I knew I had time. Which, if this wasn't like a deal I have under contract now, where the time frame is very, very, very critical, I would have been a lot more reluctant to give them their money back because it would have just it would have been a lot harder to come up with the equity that's needed. John, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Best advice ever: Don't take no and don't get discouraged. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of no's. It could be you know a thousand no's. Don't, uh, it, it's one yes makes up for all those no's, uh, whether you're doing a small deal or a big deal. I think this is just something for everybody, myself included, to take note of. You're calling five to 700 owners a month, or your team is now collectively calling that many, and you're doing mailings. What are those conversations like? You get a lot of the, you know, choice words hang up, but... <laughs> When I was calling as a broker, there was a reason for that. Multifamily investing is different than single family. There's not much personal connection. It is a business. So I like to have a very passive conversation with them and really build a database for follow-ups. Second piece of best ever advice I would say is follow-up. A lot of people put something on paper, have a conversation, and they never speak to the person again. So uh, follow-up. And that's the approach I take to the direct mail and and cold call. It's it's a very passive conversation. Really? Hi, it's John Cohen from JC Property Group. You know, what are your plans? I see that you're the owner of 123 Main Street. You know, what are your plans in the market this year? You know, have a very friendly conversation with them. It's hard, especially when you're calling the Midwest and Southeast. Those people are a little bit nicer than some New Yorkers. Uh, that's just what it is. But uh, I try and have a very passive, friendly conversation and find out what their plans are and then start digging a little bit deeper so I can get the income and expenses from them and a rent roll. And that's what I do. So a lot of the conversations are, you know, it's you and your buddy having a conversation about real estate. That's what I tell the people, you know, the two people that were my team. I say, you know, have a conversation with them. Don't pressure them. Don't harass them. Don't pound them. You know, be a little bit more passive on the first conversation. And then as it gets through the life cycle, you know, the life cycle, then you get a little bit more aggressive, but up front, you know, keep it friendly and, and get information from them. You want to build as much information as you can. So your next call, you could say, well, you know, I just spoke to Mike, you know, and he was telling me something, you know, where's the difference? You could put it together. You could build a good picture or, you know, build a solid foundation for the market in general. 
And what do you mean by pat? I understand the passive, but what do you mean by you know subsequent conversations? Be you can be a little bit more aggressive. That's when you know you listen. If you want to make a deal, I'm gonna need your income and expenses. I'm gonna need your rent roll. You know, I'm gonna need some things from you. So it's I know you keep saying you're gonna send it, but you gotta send it, or there's not much I can do. You know, you could give me the rent roll over the phone, but you know when it comes time to it, you know I'll sign contracts. But an addendum on my contract's going to be, you know, trailing 12s, you know, uh, all, you know, rent rolls, any service, you know, contracts you have out there, utility bills, insurance. So as you go through the process, just getting a little bit more, you know, I know we're friends here, but there is a root of this conversation and I need to get this information or where is this going? Does a New York accent hurt you in those conversations with the Midwest (laughs) people? I get, can you slow down? You're talking too quickly. I get that a lot. But, uh, you know, right out of the box, they generally say, you're from New York, aren't you? And uh, <laughs> it's, it's a tough thing to say that you're not. <laughs> <laughs> do you use your phone number, the out-of-state area code, or do you use a local number? I use Ring Central. It's just one of those things I came up when I was early in my career, got a Ring Central number. Uh, it's not local to the market. It is a 516 number, which is not even Queens. It's actually Nassau County. And uh, it works. Um, I know there's two schools of thought on it. But I can't say that it's not working. So business line, Ring Central, uh, my local zip code, my local area code. John, I could keep talking to you for days, my friend. But <laughs> unfortunately, the format for the show does not allow it. <laughs> and my girlfriend's going to be coming back soon. And, and we've got plans tonight. So I, we've got to jump into the lightning round. But boy, am I enjoying this conversation. You, re- you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners crowdfunding. You've heard about it. Now it's time for you to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor today, Patch of Land, they're the leading expert in the crowdfunding space and they've got all the answers to all of your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. What's the best ever book you've read? I'm going to go Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Gary Keller and uh, Jay Papazon both wrote that book. And Jay has been on the show before. So if you want to check out Jay's episode, just Google my name, Joe Fairless, and Jay Papazon's name and go ahead and listen to him talk and then go check out that book that John just mentioned. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it? I fractured my back when I was in ninth grade playing on varsity and it was the most devastating thing that could happen to a ninth grader who loved baseball and basically what it taught me was you know no matter what no matter what lies ahead of you mindset is going to get you through that and you know at first it was hard but then I realized you know just see where you're gonna go and do what you got to do and getting over that was probably the best thing ever because it taught me you could do really do anything that you put your mind to best ever deal you've done Best ever deal I did was a tax deed property. Oh, no, the 48-unit syndication. No. <laughs> Best ever deal I did was probably a tax deed property I picked up, $32,000. Owner tried to fight me in court. His lawyer stood up and said, the fair market value of this house is $120,000. This is a classic sign of predatory investing. The judge looked at him and said, when was the last time you paid your taxes? He said, 2007. She said, you're kidding. How old are you? He said, how old he was? He goes, my mom's responsible for paying it. She goes, I've heard enough. You said the house is worth 122000 Pay the kid. So we actually went outside, negotiated it, and I sold it back to him for $95,000. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? 
my 121 unit in Columbia, South Carolina. Just got contracts back today. It is 121 units with four retail spaces beneath it. Complete repositioning, complete rebranding. $10 million project, $3.5 million in equity I'm going to need. I am super excited about it, and I am looking forward to going out and raising some money for it. You haven't even had a chance to catch your breath. You're already <laughs> on to the next one. Yes, I am uh, I am hitting the ground running. I basically mortgaged my future, and I'm putting everything into, the, into this model because it's what I believe in, and I'm going for it. Did you put your own money in the first one, and are you putting your money in this one as well, if you did? I did not put any money into the first one. Luckily, I was able to, I did, I was planning on putting some in. This one, I'm sitting with a little bit different investor, not necessarily friends and family. They are in this as well, sitting with some private equity firms, and they want to see, you know, 10%, 15%, what I'm hearing from the people I'm sitting with. So it's a conversation that I'm having internally with a mentor of mine to see how to go about this. But it looks like I probably will, just for the simple fact that I do believe to have skin in the game. I mean, if you're going to trust me, I have to trust me. So luckily, I didn't do it on my first, but I am willing and prepared and believe that you should put something in, you know, just a good faith, you know, a good faith amount. Best ever way you like to give back? I like to give back. I know my grandfather came from a poor family in East New York, and we like to go what he did all the time. We were, you know, being brought up was, uh, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all the big holidays. We'd go to the toy store. I have 10 cousins. We'd go to the store, buy as many presents as we wanted. My grandpa said, you know, don't worry about money. Buy it for, you know, churches, you know, less fortunate. Thanksgiving, you know, as much food as we could put together. Uh, One thing that I am looking to implement in my deals is a small portion of the return going towards different charities, you know, you know, structuring the deal around that. I did have a cousin that was uh, injured in, you know, overseas, uh, wounded warriors. um, But I do want to give back not only for my efforts of putting deals together, but in different aspects. So, you know, I don't have a direct answer, but I do like to give back every chance I can. It's something that I definitely pride myself on. What's the biggest mistake you've made so far in real estate? Thinking I know everything. Without, I did four years before I ended up sitting down with a mentor and realizing that if I wanted to take my business to where it was and not a mom and pop organization, no, nothing wrong with that. I did need support from someone that was doing a lot bigger deals than me. And uh, listening more than talking definitely help me out. What's the best ever place to reach you, John? Best ever place to reach me. I am very, very accessible cell phone. I do. I am on the phone a bunch. So I would say if you shoot me an email, that is the best place to get me. I will get back to you generally in 24, 48 hours. I love sitting down and grabbing coffee with you know anybody. I love talking real estate. So uh, email is good for me or, uh, or my cell phone. And that cell phone is hot because you're making a lot of calls on a, on a monthly basis. So hopefully you've got like extra battery life and a charger and so does your team. Yes. I mean, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I'm so grateful that you were able to sit down and spend some time with us, John. I mean, from, you know, learning not to buy land that has an in use, that has a not in use power transformer. <laughs> But my gosh, that's a 360 or $72 learning. And the lessons that you learned from your previous experience in real estate at Marcus Millchap and, and doing that to applying it to, um, to multifamily. And you said one of the lessons was not relying on a broker. You love brokers, but you're a big advocate of, as you say, knocking on doors and cold calling. And boy, did you get into the specifics on that. For anybody who's doing multifamily investing, this is a how-to guide. 
on how to get off-market deals, which happens to be, I guess, a theme, an unintentional theme <laughs> over the last week. I know you you listened to Juan's episode that aired about a week ago yes. on multifamily, and this is just a fantastic conversation as well about it. And you know, using directmailtools.com is what you use. Costs about eighty-five cents to a dollar per lead. Now you buy those leads from ListSource. It's about eight cents a lead. You search for the units that are 50 units or more that you look for free and clear or mortgages coming due. You look around 1970s or above construction. You also go on Property Shark to look at the to get the the leads as well. The Marcus and Millichap example where you talked about where you must have make a minimum of 350 contacts a week, but you know your team's doing. Well, you said from a stockbroker standpoint, you were making 500 calls a day. So that was a cakewalk. And that's what you've applied in your business. I mean, clearly it's hustle, it's smarts, and it's just calculated risk is kind of the recipe that, that you've you've chosen to implement. And it's been successful for you to get that 48-unit syndication where you've got three investors, two of them backed out, yes. $500,000 after they wired the money. Oh my <laughs> God, I can't imagine to be a fly on the wall at your place whenever you saw not one, but two after they wired the money. And then them receiving it back as a re- I've never heard of that yeah. before. I've I've never heard of that. I mean that that had to be just emotionally a a character building experience as I like to call them. And you're much better as a result from it happening, right? I agreed a hundred percent. My mentor even said he's like, you are a tough person because I would have been in a little bit different position. I was like, listen, it's life. <laughs> life comes up. What do you you know? You can't change it. You can only you know. You can't change what happened. You can't change the past. You only go forward. And, you know, you just got to wake up and, you know, pound the pavement. I love it. Well, thank you so much, John. We're going to leave it on that note. Wonderful conversation. Again, thank you for sharing your advice with the best ever listeners. We all took away a lot from this conversation. We'll talk to you soon. It's a pleasure, Joe. Thank you. 